It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The center of gravity of global science has shifted to the east and to the south away from Western Europe and the US and towards our part of the world in the Indo-Pacific. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College. In this program, Paul Harris, Adjunct Fellow at the Centre for Security and Emerging Technology, joins Catherine Manstead to discuss the need to systematically rethink how the Australian science system engages with the rest of the world and delivers value to the nation. Paul's the author of our latest policy options paper, Clever Country in a Changed World, Rethinking Australian Science Policy. There's a link in the show notes to both the PDF and our new audio paper format. Definitely give it a listen. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, on with the show. G'day, Paul, and welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's fun to be here. Look, today is a quite an exciting podcast, a red-letter podcast for the National Security College because we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about science, tech, innovation and security, uh, but we're also um, very excited to introduce a publication, Paul, that you've just wrote, uh, written for the college uh, on Australia's science policy uh, and how we need to perhaps adapt and change that science policy for the new world order of of science and tech. So we're very much looking forward to this conversation. And I'm going to start by throwing a open-ended question to you, Paul. You talk a lot in your writing about the international or global science system. Now, I guess when we're talking about economics, maybe we think often in terms of systems. Science is not something I've thought about so much as a system, let alone a global system. When you talk about the global science system and then Australia's system or the US's system, what exactly are you trying to convey? So I think the the analogue to, to the global economy and the economic system is a good one, actually, for science and technology, because in a lot of ways, I think about Australia in science and technology in a similar way to the way I think about Australia in the global economy, which is that we're a small country in the grand scheme of things. Um, and we have been very successful over the last 20 or 30 years as a small country in a big globalising system by being very open and highly engaged. Um, if you think about economics, um, you could measure things like trade and investment and for science, we could measure things like international collaboration, co-publication, um, patenting, and so on. And the story of Australian science is really one of um, huge success through 
um, an uncommonly high level of integration with what's happening in science and technology in the rest of the world. And um, on a good day, Australia probably produces somewhere around two or maybe three percent of of global knowledge and science and research every year. Um, and the the way we've been able to to be successful scientifically and 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 to really leverage what we do at home for a broader benefit is by being very um, connected to knowledge and science and technology that's produced in other parts of the world. So I, I do want to draw you out because in your paper you've got some really specific recommendations for how Australia should adapt our science system. But the first thing that, if I may summarise the thrust of your paper, it seems to be to say that, look, the global science system has changed. It is very different today than it was even 10 years ago. And Australia needs to fundamentally change in some respects its science policy because of global trends. Can you outline for us what are the main shifts in science and tech right now? And I assume they're not just things that Australia needs to be um, concerned with. No, absolutely. And and I'm coming to you from the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where I work in the ANU's North American Liaison Office and, and in our embassy here in Washington. And I can tell you, um, and, it, you know, perhaps it's something we can come back to, that the U.S. government is also really grappling with changes in the global science and technology system and, and what that means for America. Um, I'll come back to America in a minute, but maybe to set the scene for for thinking about Australia's place in global science and technology, you know, I could go all the way back to the year 1900, which is the first year when um, scientific publications from Australia appear in the in the global databases. So in the Web of Science database, which has a big chunk of, of global research and, and science captured in it, the very first publications um, from Australia were in the year 1900. There were four that year. Um, two were published in journals in the UK and two were actually scientific reports by the then US consul in Sydney about the plague situation in Australia. So even though 120-something years have passed, um, we still have lots of international science collaboration on pandemics and and infectious diseases, and I'm glad we do at the moment. But but so we've gone from four scientific publications in the year 1900 in Australia to the situation we have in the present day where Australian researchers and scientists publish over 100,000 papers um, every year. And if you look at, at the, the, the data, there's really a, a steady growth through the 20th century of Australian research and scientific um, capability. And we had a big sort of boom in the post-war years and the 60s and the 70s with lots of new Australian government investments in, in research and science and universities. And in, in fact, the ANU was created in that period. Um, and then since the 1990s, there's really been a huge increase again in Australian research and science, driven mostly by high levels of international collaboration. Um, so today, about 60% of all of our scientific publications, our research journal articles um, that come from Australia are co-authored with researchers and scientists in other countries. 
And we're kind of at the top of the global league table with the UK um, at that at that rate. They're, just for comparison, the US is around 38, 39%, and the global average is about 23% collaboration. So we've seen these kind of waves of expansion and development of Australia's scientific capability. And over the last 20 or 30 years, that's really been driven by high levels of international cooperation. And then what's been happening in the in the kind of global system in that same time, since the 90s, since the year 2000, has been a big increase in investment in research and science and technology and innovation all around the world. Um, you know, I think in the, in the 70s and 80s, really most of the kind of science hotspots in the world were in the US and maybe Japan and Western Europe. But now it has really globalised. And since the year 2000, there's been a tripling of global investment in, in R&D, research and development, um, and it's really spread to many more countries as many governments have um, used investments in science and innovation as a way to try and drive their own economic development and, and security. Um, and so the world of science now is much more complicated and dynamic and multipolar than it was even 20 years ago. Um, the amount of science being done every year has grown massively. Um, and a colleague of mine from Europe, Sylvia Schweig-Serger, has written about this and said that, you know, the centre of gravity of global knowledge production and science and technology has really shifted in the last 20 years and she would say that the centre of gravity of global science has shifted to the east and to the south, away from Western Europe and the US and towards our part of the world in the Indo-Pacific. So that creates lots of opportunities for Australia because um, that's our part of the world, but it also creates a whole bunch of new risks and security challenges as well. Paul, let's draw you out quickly on some of those security challenges. I thought it was interesting having read your paper um, when I opened the um, office of the Director of National Intelligence in the US's um, uh, Worldwide Threat Report, um, which has just been released, that there's a, a short section on emerging technology, no, nothing on uh, on science, although I did do a, a thorough control effing, um, but in the emerging technology section, it leads with the observation that US leadership in emerging tech is challenged. Um, but it looks at that very much through a China lens. So it says we there will be there will be a more level playing field, which sounds very much like your multipolar observation. But it also says that China is going to be the primary challenge to the US and that is the key concern um, in terms of national security. When you're looking at the national science system and, and you're looking in particular at the way in which Australia has really led on collaboration and cross-border engagement, how do you approach, let's call it the China question, because it does seem that a lot of discourse on science and tech policy right now often starts and ends with contemplation of what China is doing and how that affects security um, in uh, the West? I think, I think the rise of, of China in science and technology has been remarkable over the last 20 years. Um, 
And it is, it is something that we should be paying attention to and, and studying. And I think it creates both opportunities and challenges for, for us and for the US. Um, to, to put the, the, the US kind of discussion in perspective, you know, if you go back to the post-war years, um, you, you had the famous report by Vannevar Bush, Science, the Endless Frontier in 1945, which really was the blueprint for the US government investing heavily in research and science and technology in the post-war era, um, the, the space program and all of that. Um, in 1960, the US accounted for 70% of world R&D. So 70% of all research and development all over the world was done, you know, in America. By the 90s, by 1995, that was down to 40%, and now it's down to about 25%. So America's sort of unquestioned leadership in all fields of science and technology um, is is over, and, and, you know, the sort of the implications of that for US policy are massive. And that's something that we spend a lot of time looking at in the work we do here. Um, And so we now have a situation where the US accounts for about 25% of of global research and development. China accounts for a roughly equivalent level. Um, And I think that's incredibly significant for how we think about who we partner with and 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 what the the benefits and risks of international cooperation are but i would also argue very strongly that if we just focus on this kind of bilateral or binary competition between the us and china we're now missing the other half of global research and development so you know whether it's countries like Japan, Germany, South Korea, France, India, Brazil, the UK, you know science and technology are spread across many more countries than they used to be and I do think that while we have to pay attention to what's happening in the US and in China and and increasingly between the US and China um if we just focus on that and we miss the other half of global science and technology, then we've done ourselves a big disservice, I think. That's a fascinating insight. And what it, what I'd like to take you to now is we've spent a lot of time talking about the way in which science is more multipolar and the geography of science is changing. But it strikes me that the nature of science and technology today is very different from the Vannevar Bush days of the 40s um, when governments were the main players. Today, science and tech tends to diffuse quicker. It tends to um, often be um, to democratise. You can't lock up innovation within government, for instance. It spreads quickly across societies and economies. And so I suppose to take you to something you said earlier about fear in the US of, of the US being number two, for instance, how much of a problem is that to be number two in a world where time is much more compressed, where you might have a piece of innovation over here and it might flourish very quickly across an economy and a society and it will cross borders. It's not going to be locked up necessarily within one country. Um, And also where a lot of science and tech these days is multi-use. So an application in one sector um, might you might find that there's a, an application or applications across other sectors that are very different and very perhaps not anticipated by the founders or the the inventors of that particular um, piece of piece of tech or piece of of scientific insight. 
How does that play into your thinking about the global science system? It's not just geography, is it? It's also something to do with time and speed. I, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, you made reference to the the um, the report recently about global trends and threats from, from ODNI here in the US. And I think one of the striking things about that report is the acknowledgement that actually developments in science and technology have made the world, you know, more more tricky to understand and manage and that some of these technologies have kind of accelerated beyond our control. And I think that's an incredibly important insight. And it it's it has big, it should, I think, have big implications for how we think about science and technology and innovation policy. Because I think for a long time in the United States, there has been a very sort of free market um, model where, you know, there was this kind of idea of the linear model of science and innovation where you know, you pump money in at one end and good, you know, new ideas and new technologies come out the other end and they have all these fantastic impacts. Um, in society, they, they, you know, expand the economy and they, they help America ensure that it, you know, stays at the forefront of, of defense and security by having a sort of an advantage over all of its um, adversaries when it comes to new technologies um, for warfighters. Um, I think, you know, from an Australian perspective, it doesn't matter so much if you're not number one because we've we haven't been in that that situation we've always been a smaller country that has played the the globalizing international system to our advantage by being highly networked and linking in with what's happening in other parts of the world bringing that new knowledge and that science and those new technologies back and applying them for australia whereas the us has had a very different model and and i would argue that i think the us is going to have to start to adopt different kinds of approaches to technology and innovation because they're not always going to be in the lead in all fields of, of, of science and technology and they will need systems and mechanisms for finding out what's happening in other parts of the world and bringing it back to, to benefit their own country. Um, I think you're also right that the nature of science has changed a lot. We've just done some work with colleagues here in the US looking at patterns of research production and collaboration. And one of the things we noticed is that um, Australian science is much more multilateral than American science. So America, when it collaborates with other countries, it tends to do it in a sort of in a bilateral way most of the time. But we actually see patterns in Australian research and, and scientific collaboration where we are doing more with bigger groups of of scientists in other countries in some key fields like computer science and engineering and, and energy and environment um, than, than almost any other country. So we're much more networked into bigger, bigger scientific teams internationally, whereas the bigger powers tend to, you know, just focus domestically and then pick off collaboration with select international partners when they need it. Um, so I think... I think policies in Australia and in the United States are, are going to have to adapt to that changing environment because the old way we have of doing things is is not going to work anymore. Um, and and you know to 
to foreshadow one of the recommendations in the paper, I think a huge challenge for any science system and any government in this new world order for science and technology is even just knowing what's going on and where and and who's doing it. And, um, you know, in the olden days, I think of, of science, we relied on individual researchers to know their field and to know who the best people in their field were globally. Um, they went to conferences, they, they met up with the people who were doing exciting new work in their particular field and they kept on top of what was happening internationally. But with the globalisation of science and technology, there's just no way any one person or one institution or one government can can keep on top of everything all the time because it's moving so fast. And we've seen that with, with COVID research, for example. Um, so we are going to need new systematic ways of tracking what's happening globally, um, compiling all of the various data sets that we have and using that to inform decisions by individual scientists and universities and policymakers about, you know, what's happening globally, what does that mean for where we're investing at home domestically, where are the good opportunities, where are the significant risks, and who do we need to partner with or avoid partnering with to mitigate those risks and to sort of get as much benefit as we can from working internationally. But that actually, I think, requires a whole new um, analytical capability that that not many governments and, and institutions have. And in fact, even in the here in the US, that's something that's being debated vigorously at the moment about how does America keep up with what's happening in the rest of the world. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I think that's one of the, if I may, revolutionary recommendations in the report that you've written for us, that the Australian government, together with industry and researchers, need to generate an open source capability for tracking and understanding the complex system of science that we have, and in particular, who's doing what, when, how and where in terms of science and tech. And I, the reason I say revolutionary is because a lot of discussions um, I read and see about science and tech po policy, often we tend to focus on figuring out and identifying and labelling, you know, lists of disruptive or critical tech, saying these are the techs that we care about and there's a lot of robust debate around 
Should we be caring about AI, quantum, biotech? If so, which applications? But you've almost turned that on its head and said instead of focusing on outputs, we need to focus more on inputs. And the other thing that I thought was quite thought-provoking about the paper you've written for us and others you've written in the US context as well is saying, and when we're thinking about inputs, it's about a lot more than just funding. There is a tendency in science policy debates just to focus on dollars and there's a range of other inputs as well. So um, how are you, I mean, is my assessment of that right? And and if so, what are the key inputs that we should be focused on? And do we need to take debate a little bit away from outputs and lists of tech that we think are going to change the world and, and trying to make predictions about tech and actually focusing more on the system itself and, and who's doing what when? Yeah, I would definitely agree that we should be thinking more systematically about the system, both both nationally and how our national system plugs into the bigger global system for science and, and for technology and innovation. Um, I think there's a lot of data out there, but we don't bring it together and 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 join it up in in useful ways. And you know, we see we see this playing out at the moment with the discussion about foreign interference in universities and. Um, calls for universities and individual scientists to be more transparent about who they're partnering with and and you know for there to be more due diligence about those decisions about who to collaborate with or who to sign a contract with or who to accept funding from um, and I think what we really need to do is bring together all of the different information and data sets that we have on on you know, collaboration, people, scientific papers, funding, flows of money, patents, all those things um, to really give us a, a holistic, systematic picture of what's happening. And then we can start to make more nuanced decisions about the weighing up the benefits and risks of partnering with certain institutions or certain countries. You know, we may decide that in certain fields of science and technology, it's really important that we maintain links with certain countries, even though, even though we know there are risks. Or we might decide that in certain fields, it's really important that we double down and invest more strategically in working with allies and like-minded countries. But at the moment, we lack a, a, I think we lack an evidence base for making those decisions in science and technology policy. And all the information is is kind of out there, but it hasn't been brought together. And and I, the way I would envisage that working is that, you know, it would help universities and individual scientists with making careful decisions about who to partner with globally and who not to partner with. And there would probably be a sort of classified element of that, which was only shared, you know, with very small numbers of people, and, and, you know, there's there's some part of, of government information that would be kept and held quite tightly. But then I, I think the broader benefit of that kind of um, database would be huge for guiding our thinking about, you know, what's happening globally? What does it mean for what we're doing here at home? Are we investing in the right places at home, given what's happening globally? How do we know? And then... How do we decide who we want to partner with and who we don't want to partner with? And it will vary um, 
it will vary in different fields of science and technology. And I think, you know, we, we have work going on in the Australian government, just as we do in, you know, here in Washington, in the US government, where policymakers are identifying lists of critical technologies and they're trying to work out what are we going to do about, you know, sovereign capability and, and sovereign supply chains in these key areas of science and technology. But, you know, I think we have to recognise that the global system has changed a lot in the last 20 years and and we have to have an evidence base for making assessments about, you know, what is Australia going to do in global artificial intelligence? What What capabilities do we have at home? What links do we have globally? What power do we have to exert influence over what, you know, the big American and Chinese companies decide to do with AI that might impact our citizens? How do we maximise that influence and, and power? Um, and so I think all of those conversations are incredibly important and and we need to to have some evidence underpinning those assessments. And I think there is huge value in sharing that widely in the sort of public science system, as well as whatever kind of more tightly held conversations need need to happen within government. And, you know, there's a debate um, in Australia about whether we're a technology taker. Um, there's a debate in Europe about whether Europe can have technological sovereignty and, you know, protect itself from what happens between the US and China. Um, I would argue that even though we're small, we do have distinctive national capabilities in science that are valuable on the global stage. Um, we're not doomed to just accept what other bigger players do, but we have to be very clear-eyed about what we have and what we can do with it in the global system, I think. Paul, it's interesting that the conversation has taken this turn because it seems almost every NATSEC pod that we do, some of these themes come up over and over again. One of the themes being that in any field, there's always a huge amount of data often open source data that's lying about that we haven't yet figured out how to meaningfully collect or curate to inform decision making. And it seems that science policy is um, in the same basket there as many other areas of policy and many other security challenges. And the other thing which seems to come up over and over again is this notion of having an evidence base that informs not just intelligence assessments, not just policymakers inside government, but also the broader public as well. And that when we live in a world in science in particular, but for many of our security challenges, where the actors and the objects of a lot of um, this stuff, whether it's a researcher inside a university thinking about a foreign interference challenge or a technologist who's about to make some type of breakthrough or progress innovation, all of those are key players in our national security ecosystem and there's an ongoing debate about the extent to which governments keep a close hold on information or share it more widely. So it's fascinating to see this play out in the science space as well. Um, yeah, what I and I, yeah I, I would just say that I think some of this is happening already. I mean, I think the foreign interference debate has prompted some closer collaboration between for example, the, the university research world and, and, and relevant parts of government. I think there's some interesting work being done by the Defence Science and Technology Organisation in our system and, and, you know, they are doing some foresighting and technology analysis 
um, which I think is incredibly important and valuable for guiding their investments. Um, but but I think, you know, there as you say, there's huge benefit in, in broadening that out and sharing it more widely. Um, I think, you know, traditionally we have kept defence, science and technology quite separate from the rest of the science and technology system. And I think we are going to have to look for opportunities to more strategically join the dots between, you know, defence science and and the rest of the science system. Um, And I think because of these changes in the global landscape and because of increasing competition between US and China, for example, it's inevitable that governments everywhere are going to see science and technology more and more through a security lens and so I think we have to acknowledge that and and get good at at managing the interface and and being able to kind of as I say connect the dots between the different parts of the system and the different you know bits of information that different people hold. And you've got recommendations in your paper as well about how to kind of bridge that gap between the work of the chief defence scientist in Australia, for instance, and the chief science um, officer of Australia trying to join some of those dots. The other thing you've done, though, and I've managed, um, Paul, to obtain a sneak preview of another report that you've written um, that I don't believe is out yet, so I won't I won't give too much away, that you've written with a colleague of yours at um, Georgetown, Dr Melissa Flagg, who we mentioned before. Um, and in that report, you've done a little bit of progress around generating an evidence base and pulling out some data that didn't exist before. You focused on a, a word that was new to me, bibliometric data, which is data on research publications. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about this report, if you don't mind me sharing one of the insights, and I'll, I'll leave the listeners to, to wait for the formal launch of that report, Um But you look at the way in which patterns of collaboration and science collaboration have changed across the world in recent years. And one of the interesting insights from that report, from my perspective, is we know that Australia has increased dramatically its collaboration and in those multilateral ways you were talking about. But China is a different story and, in fact, seems to have stagnated in terms of levels of global collaboration. What might that tell us about the way in which China is viewing security risk, the way in which China might be making um, and assessing trade-offs between openness and collaboration and innovation on the one hand and security on the other hand? Um, and should we be um, learning any any lessons or drawing any insights from that interesting data point that you've uncovered? Well, I, I think I think one of the big policy challenges for any country in the 21st century is going to be how to find the right balance between openness and, and sort of leveraging the global system that has evolved over the last few decades and and protecting the the, the things that the people and projects that need to be protected for for sovereign national security reasons. Um, and, and I think, I'm sure, China is grappling with those challenges just like Australia, just like the US. And, and you know, I, I'm definitely no expert on, on China or Chinese government policy. Um, and we do have people at ANU like Andy Kennedy and others who have really studied um, the Chinese government science and technology policy um, and have written really fascinating work about that. But I, I think I, 
I would say that um, I guess two points about the data in that paper that I've written with with Melissa Flagg here at Georgetown. One is that it varies a lot country by country and by across different fields of research. So we tend to collaborate more in the sort of STEM disciplines, the science, you know, natural and physical sciences, engineering, technological disciplines, um, much more so than we do in the humanities and social sciences. And it's it's reversed for the Chinese system. So China is collaborating less in some of those STEM fields and more in the social sciences and humanities. So that raises an interesting question um, about strategy and and. I think. And the other thing that I would say is that, you know, in, in the paper that we have coming out soon from Georgetown, we don't know enough yet to be able to kind of definitively assess what we think the strategy of, of Chinese science policy is in those fields where their international connectedness is lower than we might have otherwise expected. Um, we kind of hazard I guess that it could be either that, you know, Chinese scientists are still expanding their connectedness to the global system and we could maybe expect to see it continue to rise or perhaps that, you know, the Chinese government has taken some decisions in key fields of science and technology to actually limit how much they engage with the global system and keep it much more contained within their domestic system. Um, that would need to be tested with the data. But I think what, you know, what we're trying to do is say we think these are the kinds of questions that we should be asking and we're going to need this kind of data to be able to, to really evaluate what we think is going on. I always think it's a sign of a very excellent contribution um, and a good report when it throws up more questions um, and opportunities for further research than it does necessarily just venturing answers or hypotheses. So I would really commend that report when it comes out to readers and we'll share it um, to our listeners and in the show notes as well um, when and if it's released. Um, so I think we have whipped around science and tech and innovation policy in an incredibly broad and also quite detailed way this morning. And now I want to shift gears a bit, Paul, and throw you a question um, that I didn't actually give you a heads up we were going to throw to you. So this will be your unvarnished um, answer to share with our listeners. And this is a question we often ask um, on the National Security Podcast to end. And that is when you consider your own work and your own field of expertise, is there a particular book, movie, or even moment in your life that you would say has shaped the work that it is that you do now and your worldview? If I can, because this is a science podcast, has there been a Sputnik moment for you um, wow. that's really informed how you see um, your field of expertise? That is a really good question. I probably should have uh, like a really... Um, snappy answer but I don't um I think I don't think there's a particular movie or or book that um that has kind of shaped how I think about science or science and technology policy there, there's there's a lot of great books and I'm a big fan of the history of science and technology um and, you know, learning about the US system, I mean, I think it is true that 
no one has yet written a really good history of Australian science, and that is something that someone should do someday. Um, but there are there are really interesting um, interesting works out there. I think I, I guess two things. Um, you know, I've been really lucky in my career to bounce around a number of different jobs and organisations, including CSIRO, including working at um, at Parliament House, including um, working in embassies and, and in the university at ANU, and really lucky to have been posted with my family to Tokyo and Washington and, and worked on science and science policy in both those cities, which is an enormous privilege and has just been super interesting every day. So I think that has definitely shaped how I think about these things and I'm always trying to understand what other countries are doing about this stuff and then relate it back to Australia. Um, I would definitely say that living overseas for a while and growing up in a family where we moved around a lot um, has shaped how I think about these things um, my dad was a scientist and, and we moved a lot for his career. Um, but I'm really, really excited about coming home in the next few months and, and sort of reconnecting with Australia and thinking about how Australia is going to respond to, to all of these big shifts in the global system. Um, if, I had to, if I had to recommend one book or one article or one author, I would really recommend the work of Dan Sarowitz, who's a professor at Arizona State University here um, when I worked um, in Canberra a few years ago we were lucky enough to bring him out to Australia and get him to sit down with the chief scientists and a few other people um, but he has done really fascinating work for decades on science policy and trying to rethink American science policy to orient it around the public good and public values and making sure that when we invest public money in science and technology, we're not just injecting money into one end of a system that will then spin out of our control, but that we actually think about science policy as a way of delivering good things for our society and our environment and our economy and our security and, and what it would look like to rethink science policy in order to do that better. And so um, Dan has a book from the 90s called Frontiers of Illusion. He's written a million fascinating articles since then. So I, if I had to pick one, I think I would say, you know, anyone who's interested in, in science and technology policy, you know, should read a bit of Dan Sarowitz if you haven't already. I love that your answer, Paul, like the global science system is a, is, is a complex answer. There's no one single decisional point that has shifted you, but rather a whole point, a whole kind of grab bag of inputs across your life, which have shaped where you're going. And there's some great recommendations as well to add to my weekend reading list. Um, and Paul, we're very much looking forward to recapturing you in Australia as well. Uh, the US has had you too long. So we're very much looking forward to welcoming you, welcoming you home in a few months. Thank you. Um, it's, um, it's been a fascinating time to live here over the last three and a half years, but I, I can tell you that we're all looking forward to getting back to Australia. It's going to be great. Uh, well, that is unfortunately all we have time for on the podcast, even though I'm looking forward to many more conversations on your return, Paul. I think the key insight for me actually 
out of listening to what we spoke about today but also reading your paper is and we talk about this a bit again on the podcast and in our work at the National Security College, that there are really no binaries in national security policy. And I think we often set ourselves up with false binaries. So, for instance, between openness and collaboration versus security, or we tend to look just at the US and China and think that captures everything that there is in the world. And certainly from listening to you, um, I've got a much better appreciation of it, of how much more complex um, and multipolar all of these issues are. So that's certainly what I'll take away. But of course, listeners can take away um, what they will and reach out to us on our various social media channel, uh, channels, take a read of Paul's paper um, and let us know what you think. Well, that's your lot for today. But before you go, don't forget to check out the Policy Options paper authored by Paul Harris. Links to both the PDF and the audio paper versions are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think of the new audio paper. And if you haven't already, please give the National Security Podcast a rating on your favourite podcast platform. Haven't subscribed yet? You know what to do. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.